Our scripture reading this morning is drawn from the Psalms as well as our Psalter selection just a moment ago. The scripture to be read is Psalm, thank you, Psalm 37. Normally we would sing a psalm before I preached on one, but this one's 40 verses long, so that'd be a little tough. A psalm of David. Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity. For they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light, and your justice as the noonday. Rest in the Lord, and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret, it only causes harm. For evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. For yet a little while, and the wicked shall be no more. Indeed, you will look carefully for his place, but it shall be no more. But the meek shall inherit the earth, and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. The wicked plots against the just and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked have drawn the sword and have bent their bow to cast down the poor and needy, to slay those who are of upright conduct. Their sword shall enter their own heart, and their bows shall be broken. A little that a righteous man has is better than the riches of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the upright, and their inheritance shall be forever. They shall not be ashamed in the evil time, and in the days of famine they shall be satisfied. But the wicked shall perish, and the enemies of the Lord, like the splendor of the meadows, shall vanish. Into smoke they shall vanish away. The wicked borrows and does not repay, but the righteous shows mercy and gives. For those blessed by him shall inherit the earth, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. I have been young and now am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his descendants begging bread. He is ever merciful and lends, and his descendants are blessed. Depart from evil and do good, and dwell forevermore. For the Lord loves justice and does not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever. But the descendants of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell in it forever. The mouth of the righteous speaks wisdom, and his tongue talks of justice. The law of his God is in his heart, 
None of his steps shall slide. The wicked watches the righteous and seeks to slay him. The Lord will not leave him in his hand, nor condemn him when he is judged. Wait on the Lord and keep his way, and he shall exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you shall see it. I have seen the wicked in great power and spreading himself like a native green tree, yet he passed away and behold, he was no more. Indeed, I sought him, but he could not be found. Mark the blameless man and observe the upright, for the future of that man is peace. But the transgressors shall be destroyed together. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. But the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in the time of trouble. And the Lord shall help them and deliver them. He shall deliver them from the wicked and save them because they trust in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It is an old story and most likely simply a joke. But the account is told of the young girl, perhaps eight years old, who is standing before the congregation and she is being quizzed by the elders of the church concerning her memory verses. And she is able to kind of get the first part, but then she gets kind of stuck. The first part, as she's looking out in the audience and very nervous, is a lie is an abomination to the Lord. And then she thinks, she thinks, there's got to be another part to it. Can't think of it, can't think of it. Oh, yeah. And an ever-present help in time of trouble. It gets a laugh, even though you've heard it from this pulpit like four times now. Uh, Because it works at a certain level. It's kind of a statement of how the world kind of does work. If the wicked didn't prosper by being wicked, they wouldn't be. The truth is, if you are living in this fallen world and you've made it to adulthood, you have probably developed a certain cynical understanding that uh, in the world, might kind of does make right, and wickedness does smooth your way, and things tend to go better for the evil than the good, and the bad guys have all the toys. The Bible is not silent about that. In fact, the Bible talks about it a lot. The Christian pulpit doesn't tend to talk about it a lot, but if you've read the Bible, God makes no secret that this is the way things work, and... The Holy Spirit in the Psalms has put upon the hearts of many of the Psalm writers to really wrestle with that. A good example would be Psalm 73, which is just a few pages away. Uh, There, beginning in verse 3, the psalmist has a very realistic picture of what the wicked are like, starting as I said in verse 3. I was envious of the boastful, When I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for there are no pains in their death, but their strength is firm. That focuses on their bodily estate. Wickedness actually kind of has enabled them to improve their health. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. 
who has all the toys? Well, they do. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walks through the earth. Therefore his people return here, and waters of a full cup are drained by them. Which is a very interesting verse, because his people may refer to the wicked, you know, kind of psychopathic people who are holding on to the wicked and kind of enjoying their train. But the very next verse talks about God. His people could, in fact, be a reference to God's covenant people who have been seduced by the wicked. They're envious of the wicked. They long for the wicked's blessing. The next verse goes on, um, and they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? The next verse assures us that the psalmist is being truthful and that nothing that he has said he wants to step back from. He says, Behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Now Psalm 73 goes on to deal with the same issue that Psalm 37 does, and that's not exactly where the psalmist ends this. But even if you go through the rest of Psalm 73, he never changes his description of the wicked. In this world, the wicked seem to prosper more than the righteous. And it's more than it just seems. It actually happens. And this is a great heartache for God's people. This is a situation that leads them to truly be vexed. How can this be? Uh, the way Solomon puts it in the Proverbs, in Proverbs chapter 29, is an unjust man is an abomination to the righteous. The word there, abomination, means a stench in the nostrils, a bad smell. Uh, the, the, the righteous man finds injustice, wickedness, and in this political climate we have to remember to define those terms in biblical terms. Those are kind of buzzwords the world's use, and justice means injustice, and righteousness means wickedness. We're using biblical terms, but the, the righteous person finds an unjust man to be an abomination, and he who is upright in the way is an abomination to the wicked. There is an inherent uh, distaste that the wicked have for the righteous, and vice versa. And if that be the case, and it is, then the situation that Psalm 73 is talking about and Psalm 37 is talking about becomes a, a deep question. What do we do about the fact that we belong to the Lord, the creator of all things, visible and invisible, who by his outstretched hand and mighty armor can do anything, and it looks like the wicked prosper? What do we do with that? Well, Welcome to Psalm 37, and the very first thing that the psalm tells us is, in verse 1, do not fret because of evildoers. A theme it will return to several times in verse 7 and 8, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way. Because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass, cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret 
it only causes harm. And the word harm is translated in certain other translations as evil, and actually the term uh, applies to both. Fretting will cause harm to yourself, it will cause harm to others, and honestly, it will lead you into evil. The word raha means evil. So you will be tempted when you see this to fret, and that's what almost all of our translators use for this term, and it's a really good word because that's what it's talking about. The, the, the wicked have more than the righteous, and they're getting away with it. They are doing evil things, and they are, are running down the good. What, what will we do? What will we do? That's what it's talking about. It's about fretting. And the Psalms' command is, don't do that. But that's much easier said than done. Liberals don't like our Psalms. I have here the Interpreter's Bible. It's a commentary set, and it came out in the 1950s, right after the Revised Standard Version had come out. And every Protestant minister on earth ended up with this commentary set. If you go into an older minister's library, it'll be sitting there. It was the thing of the hour. And uh, it's from the theology of those days in mainline churches and here is, here is their introductory article concerning this psalm. Um, it belongs to a time when the old Deuteronomic doctrine, as you can see in, psalm, in Deuteronomy 28, of a perfect equation between conduct and recompense was being questioned. In Proverbs, Job, and Ecclesiastes, as well as Psalm 49, 73, and such, we hear other murmurs of dissent from the old creed. The writer of this psalm, however, is not troubled by the conflict between the realities of life and the traditional theology. He holds that God deals with men by an unchanging law of redistributive justice, and that if the facts of experience at any time point otherwise, it is only a seeming disturbance of the balance of justice. For in due time, if he does not faint, the godly man shall be gloriously vindicated. The thesis of this psalm is somewhat loosely sustained, since the couplets, like those in Proverbs, can be taken as independent thought, uh, but it returns again and again to this argument. Uh, let me break that down for you in clearer language. The commentator is not saying he agrees with the psalm. In fact, he is going to, throughout the commentary, uh, make very light of the psalm, and he is going to effectively say, this scripture is very light and Sunday schoolish. Um, it doesn't take into account what they would call, quote, biblical theology, end quote. That term sounds nice and godly, doesn't it? Biblically, biblical theology? In liberal circles, the term biblical theology is used to juxtapose against the term systematic theology. And what they mean by that is there is not just one theology in the Bible. We Calvinists, we fundamentalists, we uh, concrete thinking, lesser intelligent people, we tend to think there is one theology in the Bible, but that's not what it is, they say. They say there are many, many voices in Scripture, and they're arguing with each other. 
you go to one scripture and it will have one doctrine, you go to another scripture and it has another doctrine, and they're actually fighting, they're arguing. And uh, this psalm, they say, says that if you see injustice, don't worry about it. God's got it in time. Just kind of write it out. God will make things right eventually. There'll be a time of peace and justice and tranquility. If you just keep on keeping on, God will, in time, make things right. That's the theology they see in the psalm, and they don't like it, and they will tell you to discount it. Is that what this psalm is about? By their interpretation, verse 1 and 2 would fit that pattern, and verse 2 in particular is interesting from their point of view. Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity, for they shall soon be cut off down like the grass and wither as the green herb. So from their point of view, uh, the psalmist is telling you, don't worry, the wicked will die eventually, and that'll be that, and things will be fine. The problem with that is anybody who has lived more than six years becomes aware that pretty much everybody dies. And Solomon puts it very clearly in Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 2 and beginning with verse 14 when he says, The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Yet I myself perceive that the same event happens to them all. So I said in my heart, as it happens to the fool, it also happens to me. And why was I then more wise? Then I said in my heart, this also is vanity. For there is no more remembrance of the wise than the fool forever, since all that now is will be forgotten in the days to come. And how does the wise man die? As the fool very straightforward and very clear and uh, very much matches reality. The wicked man will die, sure, but so will the godly man, and death is kind of death. So from their point of view, the psalmist is basically saying, don't worry about it, he'll die, don't think about the fact you'll die, everything will work out, which is clearly nonsense. That's not a message that any thinking person would be moved by at all. Any thinking person would realize that's not worth celebrating. But if that's the case, what is this psalm about? Well, to give them credit, many of the verses of our psalm clearly say when the wicked when the enemies of God's people, when the predators who are attacking God's way and kingdom die, that is the day of their destruction. At the the last draw of their breath, at the last beat of their heart, that is the last of their joy, that is the last of their hope. Uh, As many a good Christian has pointed out, for the ungodly, the only heaven they will ever have is in this life, And the only hell that a redeemed person will have is in this life. And the psalm clearly does say that. At the end of this life, the wicked man, passing as a wicked man, goes into destruction. 
The Lord laughs at him because he knows, quote, his day is coming. The Lord will cause uh, his, his very existence to be a destruction. That is clearly the end of the wicked. But what does the psalm put beside that when it talks about the righteous, when it talks about those who belong to the Lord, uh, their, their hearts are circumcised, they really are his, what does the psalm posit for them? Well, there's a constant theme that we heard as I read, but, usually starts with the word but, it's a juxtaposition, but the righteous will inherit either the land or the earth. In the New King James, uh, they use both terms from place to place. In the New International Version, they only use the term land. In some other translations, they only use the term earth. There's a reason for that. In the, in the Hebrew, it clearly is the righteous will inherit the land. And the original hearers of the psalm would interpret that rightly, that God had given to his people a holy land. It had been marked out for them. This would be the kingdom of God on earth. This would be where the temple of God would be. This would be where God was rightly worshipped. The righteous will in due time inherit the land. When the Septuagint was translated into Greek, they constantly used the term earth. So in the Septuagint, it's the righteous will inherit the earth. And when Jesus, our Lord, quotes this psalm, which he does in the Beatitudes, he will quote the Septuagint version of it and say, the meek shall inherit the earth. Well, why is there this change when you get to the Septuagint translation? And why would our Lord use that term? Well, if you you follow the scriptures of the Hebrew, you notice that there's a growing promise. God has given his people a promised land. They are forced out of the promised land. They are in diaspora, and this is a disaster. But there is a promised coming of the branch of righteousness. There is the promised coming of a Messiah. And when this Messiah, the true son of David, the king who is promised to be eternal comes, he will, uh, in the words of Psalm 2, Ask of the Lord, and the Lord shall give to him the nations as his inheritance, the world, basically. And so, from a a biblical point of view, if the king of God's people has a land, and that land now encompasses all the earth, it is the promised land, and the promised land is taking up all the earth. And a promise is, this king will own it all. He will ask of the Lord, he will be given the world, the promised land will no longer just be a little sliver of land in the Middle East. It will be everything. Everywhere the king owns will be the promised land, and that's everywhere. And so the Septuagint translator said, let's translate it with earth because that's what it's going to be. And Christ agreed. And the Apostle Paul agrees. When he quotes the, the Ten Commandments about honor your father and mother that it may go well with you, he also uses the term that your day may be long on the earth. And so the liberals have interpreted this psalm as, don't worry, God's got it in hand. At some point, everything will go right again in the promised land, just kind of write it out. But the scripture seems to be talking about a coming day 
That has not happened yet. A day that the New Testament describes in these words. These are the words of Revelation chapter uh, 11 and verse 14, I believe it is, or 15. Um, What's the wrong chapter? Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The New Testament interprets this promise as the day the Lord shall inherit everything he's been promised, the day the Lord shall rule, the day the Lord shall reign, it will be the day when the meek will inherit the earth, where they will rejoice in perfect peace, everything the psalm is talking about. Otherwise, you have, in the eyes of the liberal, the psalmist saying, now even though among men justice has never reigned, even though, even in the promised land, it's been filled with idolatry and the prophets have said the kings are unrighteous and they're like ravening wolves, the priests are unrighteous, the prophets are unrighteous, uh, even though there's not been a single moment in, in human history that righteousness will reign, don't worry, hold off, it'll come. Clearly, if that's the interpretation, whoever wrote this psalm doesn't understand human beings. The promise is the meek shall inherit the earth when the Lord Jesus Christ is king without dispute. It is a a, a call to view the future and to rejoice in the fact that that day is coming, that the people who belong to God through covenant in Christ, the meek, the humble, the oppressed. That's, by the way, a very interesting uh, thing that we really ought to mention here. Uh, Look at verse 25 and 26. You will hear that the Bible calls us to care for the poor and the oppressed, and that is not wrong. The Bible clearly does. But... That call is often put in terms that the poor and the oppressed are somehow morally superior <laughs> to other people, that the, the wealthy, the powerful, they're all, always inherently the bad guy, and the oppressed are always the good guys, no matter who they are, no matter what they believe. Uh, look in verse 25 and 26, and look at how the psalm uses that concept. I have been young, uh, no, 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 that's not it, um, uh, okay, what I'm actually looking for is probably 23, no, it is 14, uh, oh, here we go, the wicked have drawn the sword and have bent their bow to cast down the poor and needy, so they're after the poor and needy. To slay those who are of upright conduct. Now that's a parallelism, that's that's poetic, 
the psalmist has just defined who the poor and needy is. It's those of upright conduct. What he is saying is, if you are of upright conduct in this world, you are likely to be the poor and needy, and the reason for that is because the wicked hates you. And that's a reality, and that's going to happen. Uh, In this world, you will be oppressed. In this world, you will be the target of the wicked. Uh, Make no mistake. If you only lived in this world, you really wouldn't have any hope. You're not going to be any different than the wicked, except they're going to have a better time here. But if you live in light of the assurance of the day when the meek shall inherit the earth, when the Lord Christ shall have the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord and of the Christ, then there is hope to be had. And there is thanksgiving to be had. Because if that is really true, if, if the truth is there is a coming day when our Lord Christ will reign, then it gives a foundation for living in this world and being thankful for what you have because you are a citizen of a coming world, a world that cannot be taken from you, and a world that gives you an assurance in this life. And that is how the psalmist deals with this life. Anyone who looks at this psalm has to be overwhelmed by the number of references the psalm makes to living here and now. But it is always in light of the day the meek shall inherit the earth. Um, what, what points can we make about this life from this psalm? Well, the first is, uh, if, if what we're saying is true, the, the wicked will be clutching. They will be grasping. They will be reaching for everything they can get, whereas the righteous will be giving. As in verse uh, 21 and 22. Um, the wicked borrows and does not repay, but the righteous shows mercy and gives. Well, why, why do those two people do that? Well, the next verse begins with the word for, which means because... For those blessed by him shall inherit the earth, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. Now think about the implication of the word for, the the because. Why why is the righteous generous? We've been told that the little the righteous has is better than the much of many wicked men, which suggests they don't have a lot. But they are, are generous, and they give, even though they're not generally the wealthy. Why do they do that? Well, it's because those blessed by him shall inherit the earth. Who is the actual wealthy person from heaven's point of view, from the point of view of the coming day of the Lord, the coming summation of all things? Who's really wealthy? Who, who has everything been created for, that it would be a blessing for them. Well, it's the meek who will inherit the earth. If you belong to the Lord and this kingdom is yours, everything God has ever made is yours, because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that at the end of the world, the only people who will be in the world are those who have been given to his Son. We will literally own everything. 
everything has been made with us in mind. We are wealthy beyond imagination. If we are suffering just a slight setback in a world cursed by God and filled with, with wickedness, so be it, because this world is mine, and I can be generous now, even if I don't have a lot, because I've got everything. But what if I'm the wicked, and I hate God, and I hate his people? Uh, what's happening inside of me? Well, it's very hard to be an atheist. Usually when atheists are given lie detector tests, they fail them. Because human beings intuitively know there is a God, and they intuitively know if they are walking opposed to him, and there is a shadow over them, and they know that their day is coming. God laughs about it, but they know it. And so this really is the only heaven they'll ever have. Let them add house to house and field to field, Let them gather wealth like sand. It'll never be enough. It is going to come to an end. The last heartbeat will be the last joy they ever had. They intuitively know that. They are grasping for everything they can get. They are drawing it to themselves because this party is very brief. But not for you or for me. We can be generous because we will inherit the earth. In the Lord Jesus Christ. The wicked will hate the righteous. How many times did this psalm say that? I quoted uh, Solomon, but I really didn't have to. I could have referred to several references in this psalm. If you know that you are under the wrath of God and you will lose everything, uh, how are you going to view the righteous? You're going to hate them. You're going to envy them. You're going to desire to crush them in this life. Just because. I mean, that's your nature. That is a promise. Verse 12 promises us the wicked will hate the righteous. They will draw the sword. They will bend the bow. They will hunt the righteous. But the righteous will paradoxically be both the poor and needy, but they will also be overseen by the providence of God in this very life. Just listen to a flow of several verses. A little that a righteous man has is better than many wicked. Uh, The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. Verse 27, depart from evil and do good and dwell forevermore. For the Lord loves justice and does not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever. It is interesting, when you look at the various translations of the psalm, you can kind of pick out the theology of the translators because there are terms in this psalm that clearly don't make any sense if there's not eternal life. But in more left-leaning circles there is the dogma that the Hebrew Bible doesn't know anything about eternal life, and so they have to translate this psalm like there's no eternal life. But if you read a translation from a believer, they translate it clearly, and the promise is to you that you will dwell forevermore. You dwell living, and this is forever. And why is that? It's because God walks with you. The wicked will draw you into court, and in fact there's a reference to that right here. 
verse 32 and 33, the wicked watches the righteous and seek to slay him. The Lord will not leave him in his hand, nor condemn him when he is judged. Uh, The Lord will have his way. Oftentimes, history has shown us miraculous deliverance of the righteous. Many times, uh, there have been uh, just amazing coincidences where God has blessed his saints and they have walked free. But what happens when a martyr dies? What happens when a godly man is slain by the wicked? Is he destroyed? Does his hope come to an end? What happens when the wicked slay the righteous is the righteous is now free of the wicked. We have walked in a world with wickedness all around us. We have been like Lot, as described in 2 Peter, where that righteous man was tormented day after day by the wicked things he saw. That's actually us. Let the wicked succeed. Let them kill us. All that happens is we are free. We are in the presence of our Lord. He has walked with us our entire journey. He has cared for our needs. When famine has come, he has seen to our needs. If we died in the famine, he still saw to our needs because we walked into his glorious presence. Only the wicked were destroyed in the famine because the wicked are destroyed at their last heartbeat. Not us. God has overseen us. The ultimate end of the righteous is peace. Can you picture a world of peace, real peace? In our current condition, where even as redeemed men, sin still clings, it is almost impossible for me to picture a world of real peace. Human beings crash into each other, and I'm used to that. I even do that. I'm I'm sometimes guilty of that. What would a world be like where all destruction, all grasping, all hatred, all malice has been eradicated forever. Well, that's the world that's coming, and those who belong to the Lord will be able to dwell in it, fitting in. Mark the righteous man, says our psalmist, consider his ways because the end of that man is peace. He's not talking about the peace of the grave. He's talking about an eternal peace, a peace we've never known. Ever now and then in our dreams, we just slightly have a taste of it, and we wake up hungry for a world we have never lived in. We will live in it, and it will be peace. We will dwell in the land forevermore. And while we dwell now in this world, we dwell as citizens of the next. We We keep on keeping on as the liberals mock, but we don't do it because we expect, well, now tomorrow we're going to have a wonderful, you know, golden age. We do it because we belong to that kingdom. It is our way of living, and we're on the right side of history. History comes to an end in the rule of our Lord Christ. His kingdom and his ways will be eternal We are citizens now, might as well live that way. We might as well dwell in the land and and cultivate faithfulness, as some of the translations put it. 
dwell in the land and, and, dwell, and, and feed on his faithfulness, we will continue to do good. We will have the law of God in our hearts. We will speak it from our lips. We will be a blessing to others. And not every sinner, by the way, is the wicked. Every sinner is in need of redemption. But the wicked are those who are honestly out to hurt you and stab you. The psalm says, now the righteous will be a blessing to many, even after it said, now the wicked will hate him. We will dwell in this world, and we will we'll speak the law of God, we will speak his wisdom. Our children will grow up to be a blessing, unlike the children of the wicked, who will tend to grow up and be cut off themselves. Uh, God will bless us in this cursed world as we live out the kingdom now. And we will be able to be thankful in this world. I am reminded of the Apostle Paul speaking of the doctrine of the resurrection. He spoke of if there were no resurrection, if there were no eternal life, then honestly, we of all men would be the most pitied. And he's not wrong. But the corollary to that is since there is the resurrection, since there is the day of judgment, since there is the Lord Christ who will rule forever, we are to be the most envied. And on this season of Thanksgiving, uh, we are the people who have the right to be thankful because we are the meek who are under the Lord, who are citizens of his kingdom, and we shall inherit the earth because the earth shall be the Lord's and the fullness thereof.